Welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Claire. And I'm Allie. And today we are back with our second part of our series on King Henry VIII. And today we are going to be focusing on the King's Great Matter. Yes, which also coincides with his second marriage. Or I guess not his second marriage, but his second relationship, if you will. Relationship and marriage, I think that's appropriate to say. Again, this is going to be a little bit of a long one. So we apologize. We um, hope you're into this because it's a long reign. There's a lot going on and there's a lot to cover. And we're going to cover about the busiest six years of his life. So a lot happening. Yes, they don't call it the great matter for nothing. No. And there's a lot of things involved. We've got the Pope and other religious leaders, politics coming into play, you know, both domestic and international, lots of women in Henry's life giving him problems, so. Those women. Yeah. (laughs) Poor Henry, he had a a type. He liked strong women. As mistresses. Well, his wife was pretty strong herself, but though whether he chose her or not is up to debate. Okay. So, Claire, you said you had a little bit of... Actually, you know what? Before we get into some gossip, I want to cover off the top the mistakes <laughs> from oh. last time. I've got some royal oops. First of all, I believe last time I repeatedly might have referred to the Pope at hand as Clement II. He is, in fact, Clement VII. So let's just clear that up. He's five Clements later than I was claiming. Also, to confirm, Martin Luther did post his 95 Theses in 1517. Yes. I just, yes. I am either remembering Gilmore Girls incorrectly or Gilmore Girls got it wrong, which wouldn't surprise me. I wouldn't then, get your history. No, don't get, show. don't get, you can get your pop culture, but maybe don't get your history. And then also just very quickly, because he does come into play again, I want to talk about a very brief background of what the Holy Roman Empire is or was at the time that we're talking about, because I stumbled over an explanation last time. So it is a essential complex of territories and central Europe that was started during the Middle Ages under Charlemagne and continued until about 1806. And what would happen is essentially the families ruling this territory would gain and lose control of different territories through marriage and death and, you know, the typical royal way. Um, But the interesting thing about the Holy Roman Empire was these leaders both had their own royal titles, and then they were elected, the Holy Roman Emperor, essentially elected, although it was mostly formality because the title was almost always passed without interruption within the rule of the Kingdom of Germany. So Charles V would have inherited the Holy Roman Empire through his relations in the Kingdom of Germany. However, he also ruled over the lands of the House of Burgundy, and that included uh, Flanders, Luxembourg, and more um, in that area of France. And then through his Habsburg side, he ruled over the Netherlands, Eastern France, and then, no, sorry. Wow, I'm doing this again. The Netherlands and Eastern France were also the House of Burgundy. And the Habsburgs were the Austri- Austrian Empire, which contained other Central European lands, including Flanders and Luxembourg and all that. I might have gotten those wrong again. I apologize. <laughs> There's a lot of countries at play. Would it ever have been possible that Henry VIII would have been Holy Roman Emperor? No. Like, do you have to just you have to be part of that empire? It was a continental empire and separate from the Kingdom of England. Now, 
it's possible that perhaps if Catherine had not had any other siblings and she had inherited those lands and titles as her sister did, that, or her sister at one time, well, didn't inherit, but her son had them. So like if Catherine and Henry's children could have in fact been the heirs to the Holy Roman Empire as Charles was, um, because remember Charles is Catherine's nephew, then maybe it would have all folded together, but it's highly unlikely if Catherine were in a position where her children could inherit the Holy Roman Empire, she wouldn't have been married off to that nobody king of England. So So it's kind of interesting. The only reason I ask is because Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, but also heir to the Kingdom of Spain, which was yes. not part of the Holy Roman Empire. It was correct? not, but that that goes to the matter of the Holy Roman Empire title was separate from whatever royal titles and territories that were inherited through marriage and birth. So he he Charles V gained the title of Holy Roman Emperor because of his German family connections because he was Max, he was the son of Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor who was in the German line, but through marriage, you know, he also got Burgundy and Spain. Gotcha. Yeah, because I feel like the Habsburgs were pretty well integrated into the Holy Roman Empire because the the Habsburg Principality was, in fact, a principality of the, or the principality, the Austrian Principality of the Habsburgs was part of the Holy Roman Empire. From Germany, you know, there were there were some territories around the radius of Germany that were very officially folded into the Holy Roman Empire. But the House of Burgundy, or actually this might be separate from the House of Burgundy, but there was another title for it that was French and I didn't want to try try to pronounce it. <laughs> the, the, the Burgundy lands and the Spanish lands, those came in through marriage and those are not part of the Holy Roman Empire. Gotcha. This is why it's so confusing, but this is also why Charles V was the most powerful man in Europe because he literally controlled most of the continent. Makes sense. I mean, I think these principalities and other empires were, or other kingdoms within the Holy Roman Empire were fairly autonomous, but, you know, Charles had the power to muster the army. Kind of like a early version of the European Union. <laughs> Actually, yeah, that's not a bad analogy. I think economically a very different idea, but essentially that's, I mean, it basically it was uniting all the Christian kingdoms of Europe and... Um, I feel like the Reformation was a very trying time within the Holy Roman Empire, but we are not talking about that today. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. So hopefully that helps when we talk about why Charles V was such an important player in the divorce of Henry. Yeah, I think that's perfect for today because he'll come up repeatedly. Yes, he will. All right. So why don't you give us some modern gossip? All right. There's not too much going on. It's been a little bit of a slow summer. Um, I think there was a bit of a scare a couple of weeks ago. There was a rumor going around that um, Philip had died. Oh, I heard about that. Apparently the queen was very upset about that. But as far as I know, he's alive and well. He's just enjoying his retirement. And uh, the other piece of news is that there's another royal wedding on the way. Um, I think we all knew that Princess Eugenie was engaged. Uh, I mentioned this before and you told me nobody cared. <laughs> well, I was joking because we were talking about the other wedding that had to happen first. Yes. Um, but it's kind of interesting that you say that because she's getting the same wedding, essentially, that um, Harry and Meghan got. But there's been a little bit of a blowback in the British press because everybody's kind of thinking, 
why are we doing this again so close together and for such a minor royal? Um, which I think that, I think I get it. You know, we just had this massive wedding. I'm sure it cost a pretty penny with security and all of the, everything that goes into hosting a royal wedding. And arguably Princess Eugenie is a minor royal because she's out of the line of, she's out of the first six in line for the throne. But, um, you know, you have to remember, I believe Prince Edward and Sophie had the yes. same wedding and Eugenie is ahead of Edward in the line of succession. So I don't really think it's that weird that she gets a royal wedding. Now, granted, Edward, son of the monarch, Eugenie, not so much. But hey, you know, if the family's willing to do it, if grandma's willing to splash out for it, then I just enjoy the tourism that that's going to bring in. I really think she's suffering more from the timing. Like, I think it's, like, as you said, because this other one just happened and it does feel a little bit like, here's another one, but I don't think it will be as expensive because it won't draw the crowds that Harry and Meghan did. And it probably will be more of a family thing. Well, they've invited the public, though. Except for that part and the carriage ride and all that, yeah. But that's, that's the thing. It's going to be in you, form quite do you similar. Do think it would be kind of embarrassing if they do all that and, like, no one shows up? I mean, the hardcore fans will show up, I'm sure. It'll be interesting to see. You know, I don't know if it's going to be televised, and so that's kind of the question. But I think... I doubt it. I think she definitely has the right to have a big wedding. I mean, it's her wedding. She's um, she's a princess of England. She's royal enough to have a wedding at Windsor if she wants to. Like, I think if she were doing this at Westminster or St. Paul's, that would be, like, ridiculous. But... She's well within her rights, even in the order of succession, you know, she's, what, eighth in line to the throne or something? Or ninth? I don't really know how that works. She's probably behind her father, so. Um. I think she's the youngest daughter of Andrew. Harry is sixth in line, is that correct? Yeah. So Andrew would come after, after him. Harry, so eighth? Yes. No, she would Seven, be ninth. She's ninth, you're right. Yeah. Harry's because thing. I don't think Anne and her kids are any part of the succession, so I, th I think they'd come at the very end. Because yeah. then, if once you go through the York princesses, then you drop down to Edward and his kids. Yeah, and then you but have I think to also those. Anne removed her children from that, so like they don't have titles or anything. Well, it doesn't mean they're not in the line of succession. But way, way down there. Yeah, no, they'd have to go through yeah. like twenty people. So anyway, she's top ten. She can have a wedding at Windsor if she wants to. I think. Doing it in August after the May wedding of... It's not in August. It's in October, isn't it? I thought it was August. I'm pretty sure it's October. Mm. Okay. Well, doing it the same year as her cousin is unfortunate timing, but, I mean, we've known about this for a while, so why the public is suddenly surprised, I don't know. Uh, poor Eugenie. Her dress will probably be interesting. Let's give her well, that. That is true. I mean, but but you know what? I feel like the general tone towards her is unfair. She wore the same shoes as Megan recently and got a lot of flack for that, or like at least it was noticed. It's like, yeah, women generally wear the same things as other women. Have you seen that we're all shopping at the same stores? Like I have a jacket myself that I can literally spot five other women wearing when I walk down the street every day. I'm not royal, but you know, <laughs> same principle. I, I I am in solidarity with her. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm sure she's, yeah. she's glad as well. 
Yeah. Um, I, yeah, if it means anything. Okay, so we're going off on a weird tangent. Let's uh, let's talk Henry's divorce. I hope you all listened to our previous episode. We laid a lot of groundwork for what's about to happen in the life of Henry VIII. Last time we left off with him starting to, you know, voice doubts about his marriage, thinking, hey, maybe I made a mistake, despite, as we talked about, his very adamant, well, how do I want to say that? He very adamantly wanted to marry Catherine at the time. Yeah, at the age of 17, seemed yeah. like a great idea when you're... We, we make great decisions when we're young. It, if she had had three sons, it would have been a great idea. Absolutely, but she didn't. So by 1527, Henry's starting to make moves for divorce. Now, he did potentially have legitimate grounds for divorce. Can, um, we, can we say, is this a divorce or an annulment that he's well, searching for? Well, we're calling it a divorce as it's generally referred to, I think, in history, but you're right in that initially he was asking for or always asking for an annulment of his marriage. And the only reason um, I ask is because I think the idea of the annulment is that the marriage never even existed. Yes, he's trying to prove that his marriage was invalid. And and as we mentioned last week, there were real concerns that could have led to this, both political and religious, um, at the beginning of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. You know, politically, her value tended to waver over the years. By 1527, though, it would seem to be secure. Her nephew, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, uh, see about five minutes ago for more on that. You know, he was Holy Roman Emperor, and, and as his aunt, her status seems secure. However, Charles's own actions or the actions of his own armies basically hurt her a little bit because he takes Pope Clement VII essentially prisoner in 1527 by sacking Rome, and suddenly the Pope is vulnerable, and England and France have this opportunity, you know, the... Um, King of Spain, Charles V, is busy elsewhere. The Pope is suddenly a little bit vulnerable, and maybe they've got a new opportunity for political alliance. Um, I think and it's funny because I think England and France they wanted to be allies because they it hate each been other, beneficial for them politically. But yeah, they just couldn't get over the Hundred Years' War. And as we'll see, I mean, their relationship waxes and wanes over this six years we're going to talk about, but ultimately it's in their benefit to band together against Charles. And so Catherine's caught in the middle of that a little bit. But more importantly for Henry, at least, religiously, there were potential biblical grounds for objection to the marriage. Um, Catherine had been married to his brother, Arthur, as we mentioned last week. And though she claimed that the marriage was never consummated, she was of course, never able to provide legitimate proof of this. And the fact that the Pope had to then provide a dispensation for her marriage to Henry to even happen raised its own set of doubts. Um, there were questions at the time of whether the Pope could even dispense a question like this. So by 1527, after nearly 20 years of marriage, where seemingly they both were content, Henry wanted out, and this history of the beginning of their marriage gave him the perfect pretext. He convinced himself that Catherine had never truly been his wife in the eyes of God, and that was why she had never given him a son. Remember, this is the 16th century. They don't understand science or biology, so most of the time when your reproductive planning doesn't go the way you want, God is probably to blame. So after all, it says in Leviticus in the Bible, if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an impurity. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. And this last line is, I think, the most important, they shall be childless, as Henry and Catherine weren't childless, but in his mind, childless equals sonless. And 
They did, she had never given him a living son. And so if even a papal dispensation hadn't disproved this verse, then it must be true. So in his mind, Henry was free to marry another woman and God would then reward him with the sons that he wanted. I think this is interesting because it goes back to the idea that he himself studied religious doctrine furiously. So he felt like he was just as qualified as the Pope to opine on theological questions. And of course he's going to come out the way he the way he wants yes and as we've seen from henry's temperament you know henry gets what henry wants and you know being a learned religious scholar well over the last 20 years he probably found many excuses for why his marriage was valid but suddenly when he wants out he can easily find examples for why it's not unfortunately though he did need the pretext that you know, these doubts that his marriage was based on because he had another less morally acceptable reason for divorce. You know, ending his marriage over his own religious doubts would be acceptable to this public, you know, oh, he didn't know, they just had to, they had no idea their marriage was invalid. Um, that would be okay with on the PR side. However, abandoning Catherine for another woman, maybe not so much. And there actually was another woman. By 1527, Henry was in love and Claire, do you know her name? Anne Boleyn. Yeah, we're going to talk about Anne Boleyn. I think everyone has heard of Anne Boleyn, probably. Um, One of the most infamous mistresses in British history. And like another British mistress that we've talked about before, uh, centuries later, Anne was a woman who had a talent for arousing strong feelings in the men around her and, in fact, created a royal crisis in the process. Just like Wallace. Just like Wallace. And just like Wallace Simpson, she gets all the blame. <laughs> yes. I mean, a little history is a little bit unfair to both of them, perhaps. So who was Anne Boleyn? So she was not nobody. You know, from her father, she descended from a line of successful merchants who had climbed the social ladder. And her father himself joined the royal service and rose quickly within it. He had wealth, education, and his own family connections. And then he also married very extremely well to the daughter of the Duke of Norfolk. So by the time Anne, their middle child, is born, she's not some lowly commoner with no connections in the world. And she's also intelligent and ambitious. And her father, to his credit, recognized this and nurtured her uh, education and tried to conveniently place his daughter within courtly circles. So Anne was placed in a series of French-speaking royal households on the continent, um, the first of which in 1513 was the Archduke. Archduchess Margaret, daughter of Emperor Maximilian, the current Holy Roman Empire at the, Emperor at the time, and also she was the regent and paternal aunt to Charles V. So this is Charles's other side of the family. Ironically, he gets caught, you know, like, <laughs> this is how everybody's all interconnected, right? Anne is living with his one aunt, and down the line, she's going to tangle with the other. In 1514, though, Henry VIII's sister Mary was married to Louis Twelfth of France, and Mary asked Thomas Boleyn's daughter to to be sent as one of her ladies-in-waiting, essentially. However, Anne didn't travel with the main party, and soon after she arrived in France, the king was dead, Mary was widowed, and was sent back to England. Um, but Anne didn't somehow get didn't get sent off with the rest of the ladies-in-waiting, and she remained in France. And her where, sister was there with her, correct? Yes, Mary Boleyn was part of that group of ladies as well, but she was sent back to England, I believe. No, I well, think she stayed... Um, she stayed with Anne because that's, you know, she reputedly was also for a short uh, time the mistress of Francis. Ah, uh, that's right. 
but they were both there in the French court. And the only reason I bring that up is um, the French court was notorious for being quite debauched and Francis was a known philanderer and so any ladies in that circle were kind of in danger of having their moral purity threatened and they if you take Anne's word for it they went in two separate directions Mary Boleyn kind of gave in to that lifestyle and immorality if you will and Anne was by her own account a paragon of virtue Yes. Well, and, and, you know, as you said, because um, Francis was a philanderer, you know, the new queen that Anne was under, Queen Claude, was almost constantly pregnant. So Francis was looking to other ladies for entertainment, if you will. Whether Anne took place or took part in some of these activities is up to historical debate. Um, certainly she learned perfect French. She learned musical skills and she did learn the skill of making her way through court successfully. You know, she learned the intrigue and the, what do we want to say? She, she learned the how politics. to do, how, yeah, she learned how to play the game. So the Game of Thrones, no, <laughs> well, maybe. So it wasn't, it wasn't a total innocent education for her, even if she didn't take part in the sexual games at play. But by 1521, she was recalled home because French-English relations had deteriorated as they tended to do. And she was also brought home because, you know, the English marriage market at the time was frequently used to settle disputes of property and trying to find the right people to continue the family line. And she was old enough now to become a pawn in some of these games. And so she was set free essentially on the aristocratic marriage market. And but at, before she was placed in marriage, because of her French training and her father's status, she was immediately placed in court in position as one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting. And, you know, this is where she would see and be seen. And essentially, the, the court was the ultimate marriage market, right? So um, her first proposed marriage was intended to resolve a family dispute over the inheritance of Irish estates. Wolsey was championing the match and the king was interested, himself was interested in the outcome, but ultimately nothing came of this. Can you remind us who Wolsey is? Oh, yes. Sorry. Wolsey, Cardinal Wolsey, was Henry VIII's uh, chief advisor at this time. And he basically ran the kingdom doing the things Henry didn't want to do. Nothing came of this. Ultimately, the two sides couldn't agree on terms. And so Anne was left at court. And that's where she met Henry Percy, heir to the earldom of Northumberland, where they fell in love. And even possibly to the degree that they entered in some some sort of betrothal. Um, However, Sadly for Anne and Percy, Percy was already promised to be married elsewhere. And I think this goes back to that idea of the pre-contract, right? So we talked about this a little bit last time to get married. It really was just a matter of you contract the marriage and then you consummate the marriage. So if you had already entered into the contract or the pre-contract, which I guess is a sort of a formal, more formal engagement, then you have a problem. You're not, it's not that you can just break that and go marry someone else the it requires more maneuvering than that yes you it's not like breaking off an engagement a little more complicated that would have been quite a uh, catch for her though because the Percy's were very very rich and went back hundreds of years and actually I think they still hold that seat today yes but what's What's interesting was at the time, Percy was perceived to not be good enough for Anne. 
or at least that was what Wolsey told him. Oh, I always read it as the other way around because he was already pre-contracted and he could do better than the daughter of Thomas Boleyn. Well, regardless of who was better than who, the match ultimately didn't happen. Anne also had the attentions of the poet Henry Wyatt, um, who was estranged from his own arranged marriage. So, you know, she liked the attention from him. He was well-known, he was dashing, but he couldn't give her a marriage. And being a mistress was not what Anne wanted. You know, there's evidence that she never wanted this. She didn't really play the games at the French court. She didn't want to be a mistress for Henry Wyatt. And by 1524, she had caught the eye of yet another married man, and she didn't want to be his mistress either. And this man was the king. Henry's intention, most likely, upon meeting and falling for Anne was was to set her up as his mistress. He had a small history of mistresses. Um, up until this point, he had had one former mistress, Elizabeth Blount, who was the mother of Henry Fitzroy, the Duke of Richmond, did I? I think it's Richmond. And then also Anne's own sister, Mary Boleyn, for a time was Henry's mistress as well. Neither woman had resisted being his mistress. And in fact, since both were married at the time of being his mistresses, their families gained handsomely from this. In fact, Anne's father himself gained a title from Mary's dalliance with the king. Um, but Anne was different. She didn't give in quite so easily. For one thing, she was still in love with Henry Percy, but he was married off when his father learned of their affair and the king obviously learned of this and wanted to end it. So Wolsey stepped in and made sure that Henry's betrothed marriage happened. And, you know, when Anne got wind of this, this was the start of her massive dislike of the cardinal. And she left court for a time. But when she returned in late 1525, Henry was still interested in her as he tended to be in things that he didn't come easily to him. But Anne put continued to put him off until, you know, after a time when he was facing, you know, resistance where usually women just kind of fell at his feet, he fell in love with her. You know, he pursued her even as she refused to sleep with him. And he made clear that and she made clear that she would never be his mistress. So Henry decided if he wanted to get what he wanted, he would marry her. It's so funny because you have to wonder if she hadn't manipulated him that way. It probably would just be like another little line in the history books. Um, you know, maybe it would be notable. Oh, Henry VIII, you know, was involved with two sisters. But... It, she sort of became irresistible to him because she wouldn't give in. And that's so smart because he, once he got what he wanted, he wasn't that interested. No, and I, I have to think Anne had his number in that way because, you know, of course, at first she's interested in another man and not willing to give him up for the king. And then, you know, as the king continues to be interested in her, she had to see the potential in this, right? Yeah, and and I've read, you know, there's speculation if she ever even cared about him at all um, or did she just see the potential of becoming Queen of England because I think at that point everybody knew Henry was very dissatisfied it wasn't a secret not at court you know he didn't have a son um he was known to go after the noble ladies and I think that you know these families were playing the game too they were putting women in front of him trying to gain favors and these women were being used as pawns um not really any different than the life they were already used to but I think Anne was maybe the first one to say you know you don't have to settle for being a mistress you can play this game all the way to the finish line and get the crown on your head yeah and and maybe a different woman wouldn't have been able to do that but you know as I said Anne had this special talent for just 
essentially, I don't want to say the word witch, but she did bewitch men a little bit, you know? She wasn't always considered by others to be conventionally beautiful. You know, I think fair hair was more in, um, in fashion at the time, and she had really dark eyes and really dark hair. But she did have a quality that men, and especially Henry, found irresistible. And I think her best play was to not give in to Henry and keep him in suspense. And, you know, the more she waited, the more he wanted her. And he Which was is willing... crazy because he waited for her for, what was it, seven years? Essentially. So, you know, it, there's some debate over the start of his courtship of her. Most likely it was the end of 1524. So we're talking nine years before they're officially king and queen of England. But from the start, so she accepted him. He essentially proposed to her um, at the end of 1526, and she accepted his proposal on New Year's Day, 1527. So if we go from that starting point, now he had been after her for over a year at this point, but if we go from the 1527 date, it's six years, essentially, before their engagement ultimately becomes marriage and king and queen. Crazy. Because first, the king needed a divorce or an annulment, as Bill. We'll say. But this brings us to the King's Great Matter, which took up six years of his reign. You know, a lot of it was done in the background. The public wasn't always aware of what was going on. Eventually they were, but for all intents and purposes, Henry's mind was wholly occupied with this for a very long time. So we're going to spend a good amount of time on this today. And again, I apologize. There's a lot of dates and formal sounding document titles and all kinds of things. But I, I think it's really important to understand the links that Henry wanted to go to to marry Anne and put Catherine aside and really go into the reasons why it wasn't as simple as he initially thought it was going to be. We've got a lot of things at play. We've got, you know, religious law, religious actors. We've got the Pope. We've got cardinals. We've got politicians. We've got international politics because of who these people are there's just a lot of moving parts and it wasn't the quickie divorce that henry perhaps wanted so right if catherine had only agreed well and, and that's the along. other thing this was uh, the ultimate contested divorce because catherine wasn't going to roll over and put aside her own status and most importantly she didn't want to put aside the status of her daughter because if catherine is no longer queen and their marriage is declared invalid then mary's a bastard and mary's no longer the heir to the throne of england so catherine's not being selfish here for her own part it's really about preserving the status of her daughter and i think also it goes back to the fact that she was married to arthur first and so from the time when she was a baby essentially they referred to her as the princess of, of wales she had yes. that title so she had literally grown up expecting to be the queen of england and so now at the age of 30 something to be told actually no and would you please go quietly off into the night and pretend like all of this never happened i don't i don't think she had it in her to agree to that even if she hadn't had a child i don't think she would have agreed to it no, and also from Catherine's perspective, this is a settled matter. You know, she's conservatively, staunchly Catholic, and the Pope has already weighed in on this. Why are we asking again? Why are there doubts about this? You know, this matter has been settled, and she is legitimately the king's wife. And if he truly had such doubts about this, why did he wait 20 years to bring it up? So I, I don't think she has any incentive 
to easily give him what he wants. Okay, well, let's get into his plan. It's about a five or six prong plan over over the years. But his first plan was pretty simple. Um, hold a shotgun trial heavily weighted in your own favor. I mean, Henry's the king of England. This should be no problem, right? On May 17th, 1527, Cardinal Wolsey, Henry's right-hand man, opened a court to try the king's marriage. This was a private trial in Wolsey's own palace at York Place, and Wolsey himself sat as judge. Henry sat as the defendant, to the charge of unlawful cohabitation with the wife of his deceased brother. Uh, the said wife in question, Catherine, was neither present nor even informed that the trial was happening. <laughs> so justice is being served, let me tell you. By all accounts, though, this is a bizarre trial. You know, Henry's counsel has the task of arguing the opposite of what he really wanted and to defend his marriage because he wants to go through the motions of pretending that this isn't truly what he wants, right? It's a matter of conscience. Um, but evidence was supplied that Catherine and Arthur's marriage had been consummated based on their living together in both London and Wales during their short marriage, and a case was built against the dispensation given by Pope Julius II. Like I said, this was meant to be a formality of a trial to give Henry the decision he wanted with minimal fuss, but... Unfortunately, there's a twist in the plan, and Wolsey himself adjourns the trial because he's listening to the evidence and he has to weigh in on this religious matter. But Wolsey is a very ambitious man. He wants to be Pope someday. And so he doesn't want to weigh in by himself on this potentially explosive decision. So he claims that it's too difficult for him to decide himself and that he would refer the matter to a panel of theologians and lawyers, essentially He's going to open this up to the experts, the other experts, because the wrench here is that there's yet another Bible verse dealing with this type of scenario, and it seems to imply the opposite of Leviticus. So, oh, I'm shocked. Of course, right. <laughs> so which one is right? And there's a lot of things about that verse and who it applies to and in what positions, but unfortunately for Henry, the exceptions usually made for the second verse are only in the case of couples who had been married without children. And unfortunately for Henry, Arthur and Catherine didn't have children. So that doesn't really get him off the hook. And so Wolsey's not going to decide which of these is the correct interpretation. And so the ending of the trial means that the case is not going to be decided in England, is going to be referred to Rome. That's so, so, that's so funny. So right? Henry like says, hey, Wolsey, I've got a problem. And Wolsey says, "Okay, I'm the Archbishop of York. I'm, I'm the, I'm a, but I'm a cardinal, so I'm actually the most powerful religious office holder, for lack of a better word, in England. So I'll, I'll take care of this for you." And then he gets into it, and he thinks, "Oh crap, um, maybe this isn't so cut and dry." Because yes. I almost wonder if he was thinking, like, "Oh, well, we'll just say the marriage was consummated, and then that's fine." And then he starts to think it through and, and realize the political implications. Also, in the background, you've still got Charles V lurking out there. He's the Holy Roman Emperor. He's got the Pope. I mean, arguably, if Wolsey had said, yeah, sure, here's your annulment, no problem, Rome would have probably come down hard on him. Yes, and as I mentioned, Wolsey is an ambitious man, and... We'll see over time. I'm not sure how much we'll really get into it, but Wolsey is a a figure who looms large over many years of this process and ultimately falls because 
Henry comes to the conclusion that Wolsey is looking out for his own ambition instead of what Henry wants, which is essentially true. Wolsey is not perhaps outright sabotaging this process, but he's trying to be as careful as he can because he doesn't want to be seen as the man who goes against the Pope. Right. He's playing both sides. He's telling Henry he's going to do whatever he can, and he's telling Rome, I'm going to do whatever I can (laughs) to prevent this. Yeah. And this is the first example of how he does that in that he's not going to give Henry what he he knows Henry wants because his own, either his own religious conscience or his own ambition won't let him do it. So regardless, this moving on to plan B. So plan B, well, hey, just ask Catherine for a divorce. You know, she wasn't informed of the first trial. Well, we'll let her in on the plan, ask her for a divorce, claim the religious reasons that you know in your heart to be true. When she shockingly disagrees with you and appeals to her uncle emperor, ask the Pope to let you hold another legal trial. Uh, But when the Pope hesitates and then accidentally gets kidnapped by your wife's uncle, keep waiting. This part of the plan might take 18 months. Right. So up until this point, Catherine has no idea that this is going on, right? Yes. She knows Henry is not happy, but she still thinks, Mm -hmm. you know, they've got Mary. She's the Princess of Wales. She's not a boy, but... What can you do? God chose to just give us one child. She's got her own really staunch religious convictions. Yeah. And so and she, she doesn't think Henry would ever abandon her. No. And, and at this point, Henry hasn't gone to her and said, hey, Kathy, you know what? I want a divorce. But he does that. Unfortunately for him, she was forewarned of his decision to go talk to her. You know, they're not living in the same place. They're Things take time. Like, it wasn't as simple of him just walking down the hall and asking her for a divorce. So there's time for her to be warned that this is going to happen. And she doesn't cave. She doesn't play the the game the way he expects her to. Instead, she demands her own counsel and from outside England. You know, at this point, she's been living in England for about 30 years, but she still feels like an outsider. And she doesn't trust that um, Henry's English officials are going to have her own interests in mind. But this also means that she's going to turn what Henry really wanted to be a private English-only matter, and she's going to broadcast it on the world stage because this is only going to help her and hurt him. So She was probably also banking on the fact that this this there, there wasn't a ton of precedent for a divorce of a king and queen. That's not to say it hadn't happened. But there wasn't a ton of precedent for it, and there wasn't a really a good reason in her mind. So she was probably banking on the fact that if the rest of Europe gets wind of this, then Henry will have to cave to political pressure. Right. This is If the rest of Europe hears about this, this is going to be a PR disaster for Henry, and she's going to look like the spurned wife. So she sends word to Charles about what's happening, and he, as she expected, pulled the world. And by the world, you know, the Pope and you know, the rest of the rulers under his control. And the world was, as expected, not sympathetic to Henry. So unfortunately for him, the next trial is going to have to be a public one. No more hiding away in Wolsey's palace. In the meantime, though, the Pope, as we've mentioned, is under tremendous pressure. So on the one hand, you know, Charles V's armies not under his orders, but it benefited him. They've essentially, they've they've sacked Rome and they've essentially taken Charles V captive. Now, you we mean should mention Clem- Clement the Seventh. Oh yeah, Clement the Second. Thank you. Seventh. Um, second. Seventh. Is it seventh or second? It's the seventh. Okay. 
I might have said second. I apologize. I'm confused. Um, I'm having a little bit of dyslexia here. So <laughs> Clement, when I, we say captive, though, it just means that he's held in a nice palace and he's at risk of losing his family-owned lands and all of this. Because Clement VII was a Medici, so he's got some family obligations as well as religious ones. That's just a sidebar. So he's under very tremendous pressure because of Charles V. So ruling against the aunt of the man who's controlling him is not going to be very good for his livelihood. On the other, he's got this religious problem where Lutheranism is spreading like wildfire throughout Germany and threatening to move beyond. And Wolsey is threatening that if Henry doesn't get the divorce that he wants, England could possibly follow down the German path. Like, you know, they're dangling, hey, you know, you don't give us what we want. We might reform too. So the Pope is playing for time. So he's trying to stretch out his decision as long as he can, hoping for, you know, the French to come to his rescue in Italy or for, you know, the most likely scenario, the king's infatuation with Anne to fade. Since the Pope has never met Anne Boleyn, that seems like a false hope, but he didn't know that. So the Pope is playing for time, and that's why we have 18 months between this initial private trial at York, York Place and eventually the second trial. In August 1528, the Pope does grant permission for another public trial. Um, this is known as a general commission to be held in England. So this lets the Pope sent his own judge as proxy, essentially, to investigate, deliver a verdict, and carry it out. Unfortunately for Henry, though, this might leave the outcome of the trial dangerously open. It could go either way, because depending on what is found during the investigation, they may not rule in Henry's favor. And on top of that, any verdict that is found could be appealed to Rome. So if they do rule in Henry's favor, Catherine has the authority to appeal to the Pope for essentially a second trial. So what Henry really wanted and needed was something called a decretal commission, which was a document that would set out the law under question, give a clear reading of the law, and leave the judges only to investigate and deliver a verdict in accordance with the law. So they would look at the dispensation by the Pope according to what the law is and does it meet the stated law. And if it does, or doesn't, then they can decide. So if the commission is favorable to Henry, then the trial would merely be a matter of formality. And so, so essentially, if it says, according to the Bible, you cannot marry your brother's wife if the marriage has been consummated, then all like Henry that. has to do is meet those facts. Right, but since they were given a papal dispensation for the marriage, they actually have to look at the dispensation and the, con the contents of the dispensation and decide if the marriage met those conditions okay yeah so we'll they do eventually get this so we'll get into it so the pope is like i said playing for time he sends a judge but he sends a man with extreme gout so it takes him nine weeks to get to england well that's some gamesmanship right <laughs> it there. really is i mean he chose well so he finally this man is re you know the pope grants the commission in August. This man finally arrives on October 22nd to court. Um, and his opening play is to say, hey guys, do we have to do this at all? Like, hey Catherine, why don't you enter a convent? This would remove the need for divorce or annulment and it would retain both her rights and Mary's and free Henry to remarry. Henry's all for it, but Catherine, no. She's not taking the veil. It's a little surprising too because she was very religious and probably would have done well in a convent. But she liked her life. I was going to say, do you think she just, she liked being queen? She did. She liked being queen. She liked the trappings of being queen. You know, we saw when she was a young girl and her future was uncertain and she's at the mercy of Henry VII, her idea of poverty is 
perhaps a little bit different than the idea of poverty in a convent. That's true. Yeah. So Catherine says, no, I'm not going to a convent. So the Pope grants this commission based on the original bull of dispensation from Julius II. For the marriage to now be declared null and void, the commission has to answer yes to three questions. The first one is, would the peace between the two countries have continued without the marriage? Was it true that Henry did not desire the marriage in order to preserve peace? And had any of the rulers among whom peace was meant to be kept died before the marriage took place? So obviously these questions are weighted in Henry's favor. I mean, you could answer yes to a lot of these. Um, so Catherine knew that she must avoid being tried by the decretal commission at all costs. However, Catherine will prove to be a wily competitor for Henry. She had a trump card. She produced another bull, a letter from Julius II to her mother, Isabella, sent on her deathbed. And it directly addressed the questions of the Dorito Commission, claiming existing peaceful relations would probably not last if the marriage didn't happen, and also brought in the dispensation to include other unspecified reasons, but this was enough to meet the terms of the Decretal Commission. What? So Henry and Wolsey have to start over. So he sent that to Isabella because that, when she died, the, the question of whether Catherine could marry Henry was on the table the first mm -hmm. time. Yeah. So he sends this to her on her deathbed as additional support and comfort as she's dying. Yes, because he's looking at his original bull and saying, hey, maybe I should better answer some of these questions because the original dispensation was given that yes these these two young children don't meet the religious requirements to be able to marry but here's the reasons why we're going to get around that and one of it was you know it's going to preserve peace between the two countries and you know the only reason that they want to get married is to preserve peace and it's all very political and we're starting to see the outcome of that so Catherine miraculously produces this bull there was after the fact some investigations into whether it was legitimate um but it was originally it was essentially proved to be um valid so oh, i would have loved if she just you know just made it, it up, up a little yeah i know right document. <laughs> it's probably pretty hard to fake the pope's seal but regardless henry and wolsey they're now back at square one so they hold another trial Catherine's strategy ultimately is to persuade the pope to decide her case in rome she does not want to have this English trial. But Catherine's kind of between a rock and a hard place. You know, she she knows what she wants and it's different from Henry's, but in order for her to publicly ask for what she wants, it's going to require her to publicly display a will apart from her husband's. But in the 16th century, especially for royal wives, this was kind of a big no-no. You know, your your will is supposed to be the will of your husband. So this open challenge to Henry could mean legal victory for her, but she would lose his trust forever. So she would remain his wife in name, but he would probably never speak to her again. Right. And ultimately, she just wants to go back to the way things were. Right. Catherine is in love with Henry. Yeah. She just wants him to forget this silly little matter. And if she does it this way, like you say, she might win, but at too big of a cost. And Henry also wasn't too keen to have this trial because, again, the outcome was not certain. But he, at this point, had been engaged for more than two years to Anne, and he was tired of waiting. You know, he just wanted to get this woman to sleep with him. <laughs> so on May 30th... And she's not getting any younger either. I mean... She's not. She no. was also, at this point, around the same age Catherine was when Henry and mm -hmm. Catherine got married. So he's probably thinking, we got to get to the baby making if I'm going to get a son. 
Exactly. So on May 30th, 1529, Henry authorizes Wolsey and the Pope's uh, proxy Campeggio to proceed with a trial. So the king and queen are summoned to appear in court on June 18th. And on June 16th, Catherine finally decides she has no other choice and she formally appeals to Rome. That's two days before the trial starts. When the trial does start, Henry sends a proxy, as is expected that they both would, but Catherine actually appears in person. So she reads the written appeal that she had made against the trial on the 16th so that it's out there on the record, and then she leaves. Um, So the full trial starts a few days later on the 21st with the full court assembled, including both Henry and Catherine, so they're both present at this trial. And Catherine once more appeals to Rome, rejecting the competence of the judges in England and protesting that she won't get a fair trial. And then she appeals to Henry. This was a little bit shocking. She walks over to him, kneels at his feet, and then again shows herself to be a pretty masterful competitor. She turns his own words against him, taking the claims that, you know, he's claiming the whole time that holding this trial is breaking his heart. You know, he loves his wife. He doesn't want his marriage to be considered void. So she takes him at face value and she, you know, takes his claims of continuing love for her and says if he truly did love her and wanted the marriage to be proclaimed valid, then surely her appeal to Rome was the right course of action because don't you want the Pope to decide? And Henry, in trying to defend his own honor, accidentally gives her public permission to appeal to Rome. (laughs) So (laughs) Catherine plays him pretty well. And also the effect of this trial is that it has the effect of shoring up public sympathy for Catherine and massive disdain for Henry. I mean, this is a public trial. So this is the first time the public is getting wind of the fact that Henry wants to put aside the queen. And Catherine's been queen in England for 20 years at this point. So, And they've loved her from the beginning. They loved her when she arrived. Yes, they loved her when she married Arthur. They loved her when she married Henry. So the people are pretty not okay with this. Ultimately, though, the trial is adjourned on July 23rd without a verdict. Um, So Campeggio announces that, hey, guys, you know, it's time for harvest in Rome and we're going to resume the trial in October. So this is pretty clever on the Pope's side because Campeggio is obviously acting on behalf of the Pope in that, okay, we're going to let them hold a trial as we promised, but we're not going to find a verdict. So once again, he's playing for time. Henry, though, however, is kind of done. You know, he's he's fed up with waiting on on the Pope. So he moves on to plan D. Are we at D at this point? Which is fire your legal counsel and try the intellectual route, getting learned scholars and major European universities to side with you. I mean, Henry's pulling the ultimate rich person move, right? Like you don't get the verdict you want, so find a lawyer that will get you what you want. So Wolsey's out. The failure of this trial is the beginning of Wolsey's end. You know, he's been unable to get his king a divorce and this has turned Henry against him. And as we mentioned before, Anne is already against Wolsey due to his meddling in her previous marriage affairs. So she's only too happy to be rid of him as well. Oh, she's whispering in Henry's ear. Oh, this guy's absolutely. not doing this for you. He's looking out for himself. Because even though this is marking the end of Wolsey, Henry really, his heart's not in it. He takes a long time to officially punish the cardinal and um, in the process actually gets a lot of his palaces and money and lands. And so it works out in Henry's favor, but he's not, it's not a clean break. What also might be at play though is Anne Boleyn's religious preferences. You know, she is very open to reformist 
literature and preachings, and she's growing tired of waiting on the Pope to make a decision. So she's starting to suggest another solution might arise. And the whole, the whole, I think it's important to point out that the whole concept of the Reformation at this time is just that the clergy, the Pope, the cardinals, the priests are abusing their power and they have power that they've almost seized contradictory to the teachings of the Bible. You know, the idea of the Reformation is that the Bible is for everyone. And why do we have to filter our communications with God through these people who are insanely rich, have all this land, are Mm -hmm. completely corrupt? So she's, you know, it makes sense that she'd say, why are we waiting on the Pope anyway? He's useless. He's not going to look out for our best interests anyway. Clement VII has been completely unhelpful in this whole matter because he's weighing the benefits to himself. He's not actually weighing in on religious matters. He's trying to decide, okay, if I weigh in this way, what's going to happen to me? If I weigh this way, what's going to happen to me? So, I mean, he's basically proving the entire point of the Reformation, as are the other religious heads involved. I mean, Wolsey, what's going on in the background, part of the king's frustration with him is Wolsey is almost richer than the king. Henry, as a free spender of money, does not like this. He's happy to let Wolsey be rich and powerful when it goes his way, but what's the point of letting him rise to such power if he can't even help him get a divorce? So all of this is kind of coming into play at the same time. But you're absolutely right. In the background, the major part of this is that the clergy and the Catholic Church, the heads of the church, are considered extremely corrupt. So Henry's going to a different source. Enter Cranmer, a Cambridge scholar and priest who is approached with the issue, and he hits on the idea of let's try the moral route. Let's not let's stop with this legal strategy. You know, you're dealing with canon law, and what you should really be thinking about is moral law. Because in the 16th century, people believe that when it comes to morality, there's only one truth. And so if you've fallen on the side of that truth, then you absolutely can't be wrong. And he's so, also, wasn't he also Anne Boleyn's family's personal chaplain? Eventually, like he was, yes. He was he, pretty involved with the Boleyns. At this point, no. At this point, he's working at Cambridge. But oh, okay. um, at this point, when he's approached with this, his Cambridge career is over. And Henry's like, you are on retainer and you are now my personal religious scholar. And yes, the... Um, Bolins really liked Cranmer because he shared some of their reformist beliefs. Um, I'll talk about a little bit later as to why. Cranmer and the Bolins are going to head up this initiative to canvas the minds of academic opinion basically throughout Europe. So they're going to go to the leading universities of Europe and they're going to go specifically to the theology faculties and they're going to get formal legally binding statements on the question of the morality of this divorce. So they're going to ask them, is it okay to marry the widow of your dead brother when the marriage has been consummated but childless? Or was it contrary to divine law? Or is it contrary to natural law? And if it's contrary to both, could the Pope dispense on the matter? And what Henry wants to hear is no, yes, yes, no. (laughs) Um, He doesn't get an answer to all the questions he wants. The universities are pretty hesitant to decide on the last question in particular on the power of the Pope. Um, You know, we're talking about asking the universities essentially if they're on the side of reform or not. And a lot of them are hesitant to, to answer that. Cambridge, however, is the first to decide, yes, 
it's not as easy given Cambridge uh, Cranmer's position there as Henry expects to get this yes, but essentially the faculty is browbeaten into voting on the king's side. Emissaries are also sent out to the Sorbonne in Paris, which is perhaps the most prestigious theology department in all of Christendom as well as other French universities, Italian universities. The Italians notably are among the first to side with Henry, although this comes with pretty significant English bribes, which succeed against the other side of uh, papal and imperial threats. So uh, the Pope and the Emperor know that this is happening, but Henry's managing to succeed in getting these learned minds to side with him. However, it doesn't really work. He gets them to side with him, but it has no legal effect. You know, he's he's kind of saying, oh, they agree with me, and I I think we're all in agreement that I can get a divorce, but, you know, the Pope is still the final authority on the matter, and whether all of these people agree with him or not, it's not going to help Henry too much. So, he goes for the nuclear option. All of this fails, you know, I mean, he gets what he wants in one way, but Like I said, it doesn't help him. So he decides instead he's going to invoke royal supremacy and declare himself the head of his own church. Makes sense. Yep. I mean, this is where we've been heading all along. So in August of 1530, he decides that as king of England, his marriage is, you know what? It's not subject to the judgment of the pope. He's the king, and he, as the king, not the pope, is the rightful head of the church in England. It wasn't quite formally uh, stated at this point, but this is the ultimate kernel of the idea that would become a key doctrine of both the English Reformation and provide the basis for the divorce, and also eventually for the constitution of the Church of England, the idea that the king is the head of the church in England. Or Um, queen. Or queen, yes. So that's why Queen Elizabeth today is considered the head of the Church of England. Yes, and she also inherited, as we mentioned, Henry's title of Defender of the Faith. So this is kind of a natural outgrowth of the last part of the plan. You know, Thomas Boleyn had been, Anne's father, had been in charge of the canvases of the French and Italian universities. And the logic of this idea of royal supremacy is kind of a natural outcome of this, right? I mean, Henry has been told that he has the moral authority to act alone, but what good is that if his own archbishop or the Pope aren't going to recognize it, right? So instead, if he asserts his own custom and privilege of England to act on his own authority, well, then problem solved. So what is this idea? The idea is essentially he's the king of England, so he's the head of everything. I mean, he's at, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at the population of England as a pyramid, he's sitting at the top. Yeah. But if you practice the Catholic faith, the Pope is supposed to be at the top of the Catholic pyramid, Yes. And as a Catholic, you'd fall under the Pope's pyramid, so the Pope would be in charge, but Henry's saying, no, 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 I'm a king, I'm ordained by God, that doesn't really work. Right. So he's saying, actually, we've been wrong about this all along. As the king, I'm not allowed to go to the Pope to answer these questions, because that would take it outside the authority of England. Gotcha. So in the Venn diagram, he's saying firmly on the left. Yeah, he's, he's saying these aren't Venn diagrams. These are two separate circles. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it really is a genius idea because it solves all of his problems in one fell swoop. I would mention also, though, that he is in a good place to be able to proclaim this at this time. He's got pretty good relations with France at this time. So he knows if he says he's going to act alone, go against the Pope and the Emperor, well, France has his back. So 
politically, militarily, there probably won't be too dire consequences for this. However, this is a pretty radical departure from traditional thought about the place of the Pope, right? So Henry has a little bit of difficulty getting the kingdom to agree to this. You know, he can say it, he can proclaim it, but it doesn't mean that it's true if the people won't go along with it. And particularly the clergy were obviously hesitant to go with this. I mean, they're cardinals and members of the Catholic Church, and Henry has just proclaimed himself not part of the Catholic Church as it's known in Europe, right? Uh, he gets around this, though, with a pretty clever trick. So part of the way that he had taken down Wolsey when he was upset with him was invoking this idea of premunir, which is this 14th century law prohibiting the assertion of papal jurisdiction against the supremacy of the monarch. This is a great thing to point out, too, because you can see that these ideas of the king being more powerful or above the law of the Pope have kind of existed for a while, but they've never really been formalized the way Henry's doing it. But this Premunier law is a good example of how kernels of these ideas existed. Um, but this is what he used to take down Wolsey. And so as an extension of that, he argues that all of his clergy had recognized Wolsey's legacy, essentially recognizing Wolsey's assertion of papal jurisdiction. So they were guilty of this by association. So they're kind of caught in this bind by Wait, the king. Wait, so what is he saying? He's saying you don't have the right to assert supremacy over the king, but by following Wolsey, that's exactly what you did. Yes. So the way he seized all of Wolsey's like titles and lands and money was he invoked this law saying that Wolsey had overstepped his bounds, that he's asserting papal jurisdiction against the supremacy of the monarch. And now Henry's saying that all of the clergy, by recognizing Wolsey's authority, had been party to this. Mm. It's really underhanded. But they kind of can't fight this too much. You know, he's got them. So they acknowledge the supremacy. And then they also, add insult to injury, have to pay a fine. Oh. Get it's like 100,000 pounds. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is Henry at his most masterful. He's taking care of what he wants. And he's also filling his coffers at the same time. And this is kind of a precursor to the broader Reformation in England as the church is going to lose a lot of its wealth and lands and it's going to be restored to the monarchy. But that's probably a story for another day. So Henry, finally, things are going his way. He's just declared himself head of his own church. And so now the big obstacle is that, well, the people have got to get used to a new queen. You know, they don't they don't like this idea that he's putting Catherine aside. They don't really like Anne as the other woman. So he's got to at least get the members of parliament on their side, right? So they spend this whole summer embarked on a sort of PR campaign, traveling from house to house and hunting and whining and dining, essentially promoting this idea of Anne as the queen. Then they take it a step further in October of 1532 when Henry and Anne travel to France. So Anne, you know, with her French background, her French ways, she's going to wow the king of France and get him on Henry's side for once and for all. I think, was this the visit, though, where the queen refused to come because Anne wasn't the queen? And so there was apparently some confusion over who what woman of proper status could meet her because yes. the queen wasn't going to do it. The sisters refused to do it. So I think none of them came. And I think Anne, if I'm not mistaken, only went to Calais. 
or Calais. Yes. So this, this initial plan doesn't happen the way it's intended, but they do go to France where Anne, in whatever company she deigns to be met with, um, she's openly behaving as the king's consort, essentially the queen in all but name. And so, you know, this is a huge turning point for them. Anne isn't hiding off in her own court as Henry's mistress. She she is there front and center with the king. And so this, on this trip, I mean, it's a natural outcome of this. Anne finally, finally, after five years at this point, gives in to Henry for the first time. And they sleep together. And then when they return to England, they're secretly married. Uh, unfortunately, Henry's still married. So now he's a bigamist. Well... But as the Church of England, as the head of the Church of England, Henry has already decided his first marriage was invalid. Yes. So in his mind, he's not. In in his mind, this is just a technicality that his first marriage hasn't yet officially been proclaimed null, but he knows it's going to be any day now. So let me just reassure this woman, she slept with me, let's get married. Because at this point, Henry hasn't yet found the official who's going to proclaim his original marriage invalid. But that's about to happen. So the Archbishop of Canterbury dies, and the previous Archbishop, Warham, was a holdout. Like, he was just not on board with Henry's plan. But he dies. So he's replaced by faithful Cranmer, uh, he of the canvassing and Bolin preacher, and he's open to reforming the church. Not least because he himself had secretly married after joining the priesthood. So he's kind of open to changing the ways of the Catholic Church for perhaps a more relaxed attitude. So he's installed as the Archbishop of Canterbury, but he's not yet officially consecrated. So he can't rule on Henry's question yet. So on January 25th, 1533, Anne and Henry marry again. And this time, you know, the first time they get secretly married, that's for Anne, right? She's finally given into Henry, and Henry's trying to keep her and like keep her satisfied that she's going to be queen. This time, it's a slightly more public ceremony, still private though, but it's done in a way that's meant to leak to the public. And this is pretty crafty PR because Henry hasn't yet received the okay from Rome. He hasn't gotten the official okay from his own religious officials. But he's going to get his divorce by pretending it's a certainty because a marriage suggests to his subjects that Henry's gotten the okay. And he must know that he's allowed to get married. Otherwise, why would he do it? It's actually pretty clever. Kind of playing with fire, but it works out in his favor. So that's okay. (laughs) So on the 14th of March in 1533, a bill is introduced to Parliament called the Bill in Restraint of Appeals. And this forbids all appeals from Canterbury to Rome and makes the Archbishop, for all intents and purposes, the Pope in England. So upon Cranmer's consecration, when he's finally elevated to this office, because I want to mention Henry technically declares the Pope not the head of the church in England, but for Cranmer to be consecrated as archbishop, he still needs the Pope's, like, actions to do this. It's all very messy. So anyway, Cranmer's finally consecrated. Um, and this this does, actually, this serves to bolster the position in England because if he's taking these actions and the Pope has just consecrated him, then surely the Pope is okay with it, right? They're taking advantage of the existing uh, ways and means of the Catholic Church to sort of bolster the the campaign for this. So Cranmer's consecrated. He swears the required oaths to the Pope and then immediately protests that nothing in the oaths would make him act against the law of God or against our illustrious King of England, his commonwealth, laws, or prerogative. 
and he promises to reform wherever and whatever in the English church that shall seem to me to require reformation. So it's March 1533. Reformation has arrived in England. That's kind of interesting. So they, you know, the Pope and the church are still fighting all of this mess. And so they use them to their advantage. And then they turn around and say, oh, I'm doubling down on this. Mm-hmm. Actually, you don't have any authority over me. But thanks for yeah. making me archbishop. Because so the, the problem that Henry has is he, it's, it's this problem of being a king of the people is that he's claiming all of these things that I am the head of the English church. I don't need the Pope, but none of that truly matters if the people aren't on board. So they have to kind of trick them into this by saying, well, the Pope has allowed this man to become archbishop and this archbishop is saying these things and therefore the Pope must be okay with these things. That's funny because they're simultaneously claiming not to be under the jurisdiction of the Catholic Church and submitting themselves to the jurisdiction of the Catholic Church. I mean, the fact that he even needed Cranmer to be consecrated as archbishop at this point is kind of crazy. Yeah, and I think Reginald Pohl, uh, another cardinal, told Also a Plantagenet. Yes, um, told Cranmer upon his consecration that, you know, most people wait to betray their vows, but you're betraying them as you take them. <laughs> wow. um, so their people were not unwise to what was happening. But also some of this is done because Anne has a deadline. She wants all of this to be settled by Easter. Okay. Well, and she's pregnant at this point, yes, correct? She is. Yes. So Anne is like, I'm done. This is my deadline. And so they're scrambling to make this happen. But fortunately for her, she's got Cranmer. Um, we haven't really talked about him. She's also got Thomas Cromwell in her corner. So these are some of the greatest minds, like, trying to make this happen. And Cromwell was a member of Parliament, correct? Or he sat uh, on the Privy Council? Is that what up? Uh, the Privy he was Council. On the, That's he was on the Privy Council. I didn't really talk about him too much because he does have a lot to do with this. But, I mean, he's worthy of his own, like, podcast episode we won't do but like this is already long enough he's if you've ever seen the miniseries wolf hall that's it's all about, about thomas cromwell yeah. and he he and cranmer i feel like get a lot of shared credit they were sort of working behind the scenes they're the ones that were providing all of these ideas to henry um just to give a little bit of background cromwell yeah. was and, a was a lawyer and he was the one that sort of suggested maybe you can go around this whole idea of the church, you know, and, mm-hmm. and he was big on this idea of the moral authority and all of that. Yeah. I mean, the idea came from Cranmer and Cromwell says, this is how we can make it happen. Yes. Um, we will probably talk about Cromwell next time because he has a big part to play down the line. Yes, he does. But he um, is, he to is his own detriment. He is here Yes. At this point. But at this point, I think I think it's fine to leave him out of this episode because at this point he's sort of in the midst of rising in the king's esteem. He's by no yes. means a power player at this point. He's kind of just been introduced to the show. Yeah, and in fact, where he really starts to shine is Anne's coronation. So Easter Sunday, Anne appears for the first time in public as queen. She accompanies the king to high mass. And then on May 23rd, 1533, Henry's finally granted his divorce, or rather his first marriage is declared void and his new marriage is declared good. So he needs the second part to kind of make up for the fudge timeline between the two marriages. And now is it is it at this point that the Pope excommunicates Henry? Probably. 
So I think that's important to talk about. So while all this is going on, the Pope is saying, essentially, you are full of shit. And then now you're a bigamist. So we're excommunicating you. And Henry's like, well, that doesn't matter because I'm not subject to your authority yes. anymore. Henry has very neatly tied this up in a bow in his own mind. Like, you know, the excommunication might have crushed him six years ago. Now he's over it. But you're right. Yes, he is excommunicated. Thank you. I left that out. So at this point, uh, in the background of this, this is when Thomas Cromwell's star is really rising. Um, he essentially coordinates the entire coronation, oversees renovations to the Tower of London, a lot of stuff going on in the background. Finally, though, on June 1st, 1533, Anne is crowned queen. She is six months pregnant. So it is obvious for all to see that there's a baby on the way, you know, um, six months, your dress isn't hiding too much of that. But that's kind of the point. She wants to show this off because the clear theme of this day is a new queen, a new future for England, and the succession is finally secure. But was it? Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of work that they've just gone through. I mean, they've upended the entire order of the po political structure. I mean, before this, the king and the church were so so heavily entwined and i mean he has literally bent the world into a pretzel just to get to this point where he can marry this woman and we'll talk a lot about this next time once you get what you want be careful what you wish for yeah i mean it's the world is not the same at the end of the six years as it was when it started and all the political machinations all of the religious hurdles that they jump through it seems like they're in a place what they want but you know we're really gonna see that as as hen as henry found you know doubts in history and things that you think are okay at the outset pretty soon they might come to be burdens or obstacles in your way and i think with Anne, it's gonna take him a little less than 20 years to figure out all of that well and he ended one marriage based on cracks in the foundation that he found and he built another marriage on top of an even shakier foundation. So yep. it's it's really interesting and I think it's also important to sort of tee this up, the can of worms that he's opened, the precedent that he set. This is also the first time he's married an English woman. It's not the first time that that's happened but there's a reason why they make these political alliances and it's sort of open season now among the nobility They've seen the precedent that Anne sets and, you know, like I say, just be careful what you wish for. Yeah. I mean, he has introduced the idea into England that, you know, once again, hey, uh, maybe my daughter can be queen. Yep. So we'll get into that next time. Um, I think this was really long. So thank you for sticking with us. This particular period of time, we just really wanted to go into the details because we set up the scene last time and then this twists all of it on its head and we're going to talk about the ramifications over the next two episodes. Yep. So that at this point we're about halfway through the reign of Henry VIII. Actually I'd say more like two-thirds of the way through Henry VIII. Yeah. So hopefully you guys are interested and stick around. As always you know review us on iTunes, comment. We love your comments. If you have anything you'd like to cover, if there's anything we left out, We'll probably have a few oops to correct next time, but we'd love to hear from you guys. Yep, and we promise next week we'll be out of the legal weeds. All right. We'll see you then. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. 
If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.